architecture since 1987, bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at mainboats.com. Mostly Manding is a program of West African music. My name is Usman Jobade, host of Mostly Manding. Mostly Manding features discs, tapes, and live guests, bringing to you sounds and information from the cultures of West Africa. You can tune in Mostly Manding each Tuesday at 2 p.m. by setting your radio dial at 89.9 Blue Hill or 102.9 Bangor. WERU-FM, your local gateway to the world. This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. That's Schooner Fair right there, piping in Boat Talk now. Boat Talk is the call-in radio show here on WERU-FM Blue Hill. That's uh, for people contemplating things naval. It's with your hosts, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, two old rusty anchors that are here for one hour to make up answers to your questions. And as I say, it is a call-in show, and you folks are welcome to chime in, too. The number to call is 1-866-625-9378. Hey, uh, Boat Talk this morning, we're going to run it a little bit different. Uh, usually we do, you know, update uh, items from the Marine News of the last month uh, and discuss and and then move on to a guest or stuff. But we have such a special guest this morning, I thought we would... Uh, just uh, talk with him for the whole hour on the phone. Hopefully we have author and historian James L. Nelson. Jim, are you there? I am here. Good morning. We get you on the phone this morning from uh, your desk at the Maine Maritime Museum down in Bath. That is correct, yes. I'm yeah. hiding out in my cubicle here, hoping that nobody notices me. What do you do down there, Jim? Well, I'm the educator down here, uh, and that actually involves wearing a lot of different hats. I put together and run educational programs for school groups. We get uh, schools in from all over. We go to school from Waterville that's coming in today, and uh, um, so we do that education from sort of third grade on through high school. Uh, we like to put on a lot of special programs. Whenever we have special exhibits, we put together programming specifically designed for that. Um, we're going to be um, uh, doing some programs over the summer. We got a camp going. Got a lot of stuff going on here. I know you from your uh, novels and history books. Um, why don't we start at the beginning, though? You're a Maine native, grew up in Lewiston, Maine. That's right, the great maritime center of Lewiston, Maine. Yeah, and uh, at some point of the way, you ended up to be a, 
uh, bosun and, and third mate on the uh, replica uh, ship HMS Rose mm-hmm. and wrote a, wrote a, uh, a historical novel. That's you know? right, yeah. It was a, it was a <clears throat> kind of a long, odd road. Um, I've always loved ships in the sea ever since I was a kid. That was, you know, every boy goes through a phase with dinosaurs and airplanes and that sort of thing. But for me, it was always sailing ships. That was what I loved. And I'm not sure where it comes from. Uh, no one in my family sailed. I don't have any history of it. That's why I always tell people that it's um, it's a genetic disorder. It's not learned behavior because I somehow got it in my genes, not not through any uh, training in my family. Uh, anyway, I um, I was into ships a lot as I was a kid and very focused on that. And then I got into high school and discovered you know cars and girls and beer and that sort of thing, and that kind of made the whole sailing thing go away. And then uh, some years later, when I was in college out in Los Angeles, and uh, I saw this, this sailboat there on the, the campus, the, uh, the sailing club was putting together a little promotion thing, and it just struck me. I was like, wow, I used to love this stuff. So I started sailing again in college and uh, just realized that that was really where my, my heart was. Uh, so I bought a sailboat. I was living on it and found out that this um, replica of Sir Francis Drake's ship, the Golden Hind, Call ship, if you will. Jim, um, I don't. Sorry, don't mean to yeah. interrupt, but um, this is a, a call-in show, and we. Oh, uh, sorry. We, oh, have okay. to, we have to break once in a while, and people do call in. It's oh, interesting; yeah. they have questions too. So we, the phone's already rung, and oh, is it really? Oh, yeah. Okay. One of our boat talk principles is we'll about to interrupt ourselves oh, uh, anytime somebody comes along to kick the keel. So okay. Well, here, let me let me just finish up in a, in a yeah. sentence here. Uh, I started working on traditional sailing ships, and after a while, I decided I'd like to start writing about it, and started writing. And since the mid '90s, I've been writing about ships. We'll ask you how you how you sold it in just a minute, but we got to be curious who's on the telephone. Uh, good morning. Hi there. This is uh, Graham from Lowell's Boat Shop. Oh, hi, Graham. How you doing? Graham. Good. We spoke to Graham before. He, he first called from Bristol, England. You got some great memories. And he was, uh, well, you're, you're a great caller, man. And uh, Graham was studying underwater archaeology over in Bristol, England. Run into boat talk some somehow, yeah. and and now he's uh, building dories down at Lowell's Bolt Shop in Amesbury, Massachusetts. What's up this morning, Graham? Uh, well, actually, I called to do a little plug, but it's interesting your guest there. I'm uh, I'm also a tall ship sailor and interested in writing about it. Hmm. But, what did you um, sail on? Say again. Uh, what ships have you sailed on? Uh, in the summer, I'm sometimes uh, the captain of the Spirit of Massachusetts. Okay, yeah, beautiful. Um, but no, my plug is for actually Lowell's Boat Shop. We're running in for a or in the running for a grant, and part of the grant process is an online vote. And so we're trying to enlist as many people as possible to go online and vote for us. Give us and some contact information. Just go to lowellsboatshop.com. Yeah. But that's not it. If you, uh, if you vote, you can then enter for free a drawing to win a free Lowell's boat. A dory? Yeah. Well, it's a skiff. All right. But uh, a little 13-foot Salisbury Point skiff. But I figured that might interest the audience. Um, Jim, uh, th- this is uh, – oh, not Jim, sorry. Uh, this Graham. is Graham. Um, this is a non-commercial radio station, so oh, okay. we have to be real careful about just what we plug as far as uh, uh, well, we're, not we're sounding non-profit. like a c- commercial. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, but, I don't think we're over the line at all. But uh, uh, real quick, how's, how's business down at the Dory Shop in, in this uh, part of the economy, you know? It's actually fairly steady. Um, right now, I'm building a little surf dory for a gentleman in Cape Elizabeth who's going to use it for lobstering. 
get a little uh, recreational five-pot permit. So he's going to be doing it old-school style out of a dory. Bowles Dory Shop has been around for quite a while and been through a couple of slow spots. When did it start? 1793. Yeah, been through a couple of rough yeah. patches probably. <laughs> yeah, but been strong. Been strong. So Nice. Anyway, I just wanted to call in with that, and uh, I don't want to hold up your guest any longer. Graham, glad to talk to you anytime, yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, and uh, didn't know anything about the spirit of Massachusetts. We'd like to talk to you more in the future, man. Uh, you know, stay tuned and, and call back sometime. Well, I'll be around this summer, so if you see me sailing by, I'll be there July and August. Love to, Graham. Great. Great. Thanks, yeah. Dad. Thank you, Graham. Good morning. Anyway, uh, Graham from down to Lowell's Boat Shop in Amesbury, Massachusetts. You just never know around boat talks. One of the joys <laughs> of the thing. And uh, But we're talking to author uh, James L. Nelson this morning down in Bath and... Uh, so Jim, you you were the, you were like uh, the bosun or the third mate on HMS Rose, and you decided to write a historical novel. I, I think you were like me; you kind of grew up reading Kenneth Roberts. Well, that's right, Kenneth Roberts books and the stuff. Blower books, all those. Yeah. Yeah. So you uh, thought up a plot, and you and you know, uh, true to advice, I guess you wrote about what you knew about, and yep. you wrote a uh, really good uh, historical novel based on the American Revolution, the first one was called, what, By Force of Arms, That's right, yeah. and partly starred the HMS Rose that you were writing it on. That's right, yeah. yeah I'd, been, how'd you sell that, too? Uh, well, you know, uh, I think the, uh, the most important thing, people, people tend to focus on selling the book, which is obviously is important, but the most important thing is just absolutely write the best book you possibly can. So I spent several years working on it, and threw out the first draft, and did it again, and uh, when I finally... Um, uh, Got it the way I liked it. I um, found the names of some literary agents. You can get books in, you know, any bookstore with lists of literary agents, and just started sending out sample chapters. And managed to find an agent who thought it was a, a good idea, and, and he sold it. So, uh, and it's, you know, I've been writing pretty much full time ever since. And that caused another one. That was uh, even before the set, really before the start of the revolution. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, there are five books in that that series, The Revolution yep. at Sea Saga, starring yep. uh, Captain Isaac Biddlecombe, and I found them very enjoyable. Oh, thank um, you. Your style is is uh, real nice, and you um, you set scenes very well, and and I think you specialize in uh, putting people in interesting corners and then getting them out. <laughs> I think you're really good at that. Thanks. Uh, what I would, I'm kind of upset about is uh, having just reread them. There are five books in your Revolution uh, 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 story uh, set there, and it ends in 1777. Yeah, we're yeah. not we're not done. I want some more. I know. Well, it's it's a it's a, a sorry tale. Um, I'd always intended to write about ten or eleven of them, um, but uh, you know, historical fiction that's aimed at men can be kind of a hard sell, and uh, you know. Women read this sort of thing all the time. You can read, write five books about Anne Boleyn and the Law Cell, but uh, uh, men don't necessarily read historical fiction. So, so it was a little tough sell, and the publisher, after five books, decided they didn't want to do the series anymore. But the problem is that uh, they're still selling the five books that they have, so they won't give me the rights back, so I can't take the series to another publisher, because another publisher is not going to want to start it up unless they've got the rights to the first five. So we're kind of stuck here, and I, I get emails from readers all the time about this issue, and you know it it, it kills me because I'd love to keep doing the series. Wow! And you've written uh, uh, there's also a series, three books on uh, they're based on pirates, and mm-hmm. we'll get we'll get to pirates in yep. a little while. Pretty popular subject around boat talk lately, and there's 
two based uh, on a uh, hero named Samuel Bowater, who's a captain in the Confederate. That's Navy right, yeah. In Civil War, which yep. are excellent, too. Well, thank you much. Yeah, and then in the spirit, I, w- I would say, of uh, you know proper corporate vertical integration, <laughs> you've taken was obviously your research and turned it into several books of history, one uh, yep. on uh, the reign of iron, the story of the first battling ironclads, and... Uh, uh, your newest one called uh, George Washington's Secret Navy, which yep. is straight history, and also one that just floored me was uh, Benedict Arnold's Navy. Yep. And we like to talk about Benedict Arnold a little bit this morning. But, Absolutely. Um, boy, that's, like say, all, all good stuff, and I, I really need to compliment you on your history work there. I, I also think that you set the scenes very well. Well, thank and, you much. Yeah, and especially with the Benedict Arnold book, um, you know, um, it really impressed me with, with uh, the confusion at the beginning of the revolution, which sort of just happened, but also setting the scene of what the countryside looked like. Who was living there? What were they yeah. doing? Yeah. You know, why were they fighting on Lake Champlain and, and Ticonderoga and hardly anybody lived there, you know? Well, I think uh, uh, one of the advantages that I've had uh, when it comes to writing straight history is the fact that I started as a novelist. You know, so I kind of honed those storytelling skills, and you can use the same writing nonfiction. It's harder, of course, because you can't make stuff up. But in terms of how you structure the book, uh, how you write descriptions, uh, how you write uh, descriptions of characters, um, you know, a lot of the same skills apply. So I, I've, I've had that advantage. And uh, yeah, people tell me, gee, I read your, you know, your nonfiction. It reads just like a novel. I'd love to hear that. I had a history teacher in college who said, uh, history is not about what happened. It's, how, it's about how the story gets told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You know, and uh, frankly, American history, we've, you know, uh, we've, got some, we've got some great myths, you know. Mm-hmm. And among other things, we like to keep them simple and, and uncontradicted, <laughs> where, where we're always the hero and stuff. And Benedict right. Arnold, boy, he's, he uh, doesn't fit that story too well unless, of course... He's the definition of traitor nowadays. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Benedict Arnold, though, let's talk about him for a little bit. I'd yeah, love absolutely. to tell the Benedict Arnold story. Uh, he was quite a fellow. What was Benedict Arnold uh, doing just before the revolution broke out? Well, he um, he started out as a, um, you know, he was a uh, came from a sort of upper-middle-class family and started out getting formal education, but his father, uh, for various reasons, started drinking and lost the, the family fortune. So Arnold ended up as... Um, apprentice to a pot, an apothecary, and he opened his own apothecary shop uh, and was quite successful with that in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and then um, ended up buying the merchant ships and sailing as captain of his own ship, so they gave him the maritime experience. Uh, and he did that uh, really right up until um, the outbreak of the American Revolution. He was a pretty smart, ambitious fella. Yes, he was that. Yep. Yeah, and then when the uh, but with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because of his dad and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, then the revolution breaks out, and you know, being an energetic, smart fella, he's looking for something to do. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, he um, uh, he had been he was elected captain of the local militia, and uh, after Lexington and Concord, he uh, uh, even uh, you know the. The elders of the town didn't want the militia to head off to Boston, so the so Arnold sort of threatened to take the gunpowder and guns by force so they wouldn't give them to him, and so they relented, and he marched his militia off to Boston. But he was not the kind of guy who wanted to sit around and lay siege to a city, so he got this idea, because he, he knew about Fort Ticonderoga from having uh, sailed his ships to Montreal, 
And I thought, gee, you know, what we need here are cannons. And they got a bunch of them at Ticonderoga. So he convinced the Massachusetts Committee of Safety to give him a commission to go out and raise a force and capture Ticonderoga and bring the guns back to Boston. So that's what he headed out to do. Um, and he got there just about the same time as Ethan Allen, who like lives that. in American history as the as the conqueror for Ticonderoga. <laughs> Not much yeah. mentioned that Benedict Arnold was there. That's right, yeah. Yeah, everything, uh, every mention always talks about uh, um, Ethan Allen. And, who uh, was kind of a character himself. <laughs> he was. He's a funny guy, you know. He... Uh, that is a perfect example of what good PR does for you, because um, everyone's heard of Ethan Allen, and even if they don't know anything about him, it's, oh yeah, he's a great American hero, but he flamed out in no time at all. He, he was not actually much of a hero, uh, at least not during the American Revolution. Um, whereas Arnold, you know, for the first few years of the Revolution anyway, was, was a genuine hero. Absolutely brilliant, and uh, he, he was sort of everywhere, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, he uh, uh, you know, and Henry Knox dragged the cannon back to Boston and, and the uh, Americans, who, again, you can't, I uh, really got this from your uh, book, can't underestimate the confusion at the beginning of the Revolution. Sure. All these people just flocked to Boston. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Nobody was really in charge. Yeah, exactly. The legislature didn't want to pay for feeding them and take responsibility for stuff, you know. Sure. And, and then people don't realize that the, the Second Continental Congress, which is the only national body, wasn't in session then. You know, there was, so there was no sort of national organization. There was only the Committee of Safety in Boston, and they didn't want, yeah, like you say, they didn't want responsibility for this sort of twenty thousand man army that suddenly materialized. And we got a energetic, smart fellow like Benedict Arnold rattling around looking for something cool to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he comes up with this new project. He wants to go off and attack Quebec and and yep. uh, take Canada for America, and. Uh, you know, famously heads up the uh, uh, Kennebec River mm -hmm. to Gardnerstown, Maine, where yep. he's caused a, a number of bateaus, very infamous boats yeah, in history, great. to be uh, built by Reuben Colburn mm -hmm. in Gardnerstown. And uh, they go up the Kennebec River uh, over the height of land to the Dead River and, yep. and so on to Quebec, um, you know, in just an epic journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he had, um, uh, and it was... The idea of attacking Quebec is something that has cropped up. A number of different people had had this idea, Arnold among them. And Washington, you know, who was just cooling his heels in Boston, you know, if he couldn't do anything himself, he at least wanted someone else doing something so he could have some vicarious action. So Washington kind of initiates this, and he realizes that Arnold is exactly the kind of fire-in-the-belly leader that he needs to lead the march up through the wilderness in Maine. The problem was that the only description that they really had of this route from uh, Quebec down to Maine had been written by a British engineer named Montressor who had done the trip in June. And it was beautiful. It was like a camping trip, you know, <laughs> like a vacation for him. Now, Arnold doesn't leave Augusta until you know, late September. And uh, anyone who's, you know, lives in Maine knows, particularly as you start getting north, it starts getting pretty brutal about that time of year. Yeah, they had some hard weather, maybe even a hurricane. Yeah, exactly. Let alone, uh, you know, ice, and they ended up eating their moccasins and their belts. Yep. These bateaux were famous. They were built out of green wood very quickly. Yeah. And one thing I learned from another book, uh, uh, it's called Through a Howling Wilderness, Thomas, sure. Thomas Just Darden. Yeah. Um, these uh, bateaux, uh, you know, were caused to be built very quickly with what they had at hand. Uh, Reuben Coburn didn't have any nails. 
<laughs> so basically, he kind of left them out. <laughs> and that was one of the big problems with those boats, besides they were so heavy. Ah, okay. Yeah. They just weren't well fastened. And another um, favorite, one of my favorite parts of this legend is that uh, Reuben Coburn never got paid for those boats. Mm, yeah. And yeah, in 1824, 50 years later, he was going to the American Congress still saying, pay, would you pay me for these boats, please? And they never did. Yeah, right. So sure, anyway. I'm sure at that point they didn't want to have anything that had to do with Benedict Arnold. They didn't want to have any association with it. Yeah, just a classic story. So Arnold does make it to Quebec, lays siege to the place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, to make matters worse, halfway to Quebec... About a third of the men decide they're going to turn around and go back right. and they take the food with them. Right. So Arnold shows up and go back, you know, and these guys, their clothes are hanging in rags, their guns are all busted, their, their gunpowder's all wet, and, you know, he wants to attack Quebec. I mean, Arnold is such a uh, firebrand, you know, he still wants to attack. A leader. He's, yeah. he's displaying some incredible leadership. Exactly. Basically. And then, you know, some of the other men with him, including Daniel Morgan, uh, said, no, no, we can't attack. This is crazy. So they do end up laying siege until they hook up with the other American column uh, led by Montgomery coming up from uh, Montreal. And in great American tradition, uh, their enlistments are about to expire, so they they attack the place, uh, what, on New Year's Eve? That's right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, almost, take the, almost yeah. take the city, but don't quite sure. um, retreat sort of down the St. Lawrence to Montgomery and, sure. and uh, uh, Montreal. And then further down, uh, now chased by the British, um, yep. you know, down the St. John River and, and through the Champlain Valley with the British right behind them. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the, you talk about the myths of the American Revolution, and I think one of them is this idea that all the, uh, you know, the, the patriot citizen soldiers flock to arms to resist the, uh, the British. That wasn't the case at all. Um, you know, there was a core of men who fought bravely through the whole course of the war, but... A lot of these guys, like these guys up in Quebec, um, as you said, their enlistments were done on the 1st of January, 1776, and they weren't going to stick around for another second. You know, sucks. I'm going home to my, my family. And, exactly. You know. Patriotism was not going to move them, save for another minute. So, so yeah, the, um, uh, the British finally chased them down um, uh, like Champlain to Fort Ticonderoga, and, and there they're stuck because... Um, the British have to move their troops down the hundred miles or so of lake in order to continue the, the fight. There are no roads through the woods around Lake Champlain at the time. Uh, so they've got to move by water, but the Americans have a small fleet of ships on the lake, and it's not much, but it's enough that they could easily devastate unarmed troop transports. So the British know they've got to build a fleet in order to protect their transports just to go a hundred miles down the lake. So this starts this arms race in the woods with Arnold and the Americans at the south end of the lake building a fleet to defend the lake and the British at the north end of the lake building this fleet to uh, to protect their their troops and the British were they had more better stuff and more people and and again their plan was to come down uh, the reason they were uh, coming down Lake Champlain and and to down the Hudson River was it was the highway of the day exactly that's what made yeah. the place strategic why Fort Ticonderoga was there in the first yep. place been fought over in the uh, uh, French and Indian War was now something of a crumbling wreck. Yeah, and even uh, Samuel de Champlain fought there. That's right. Oh yeah, in the 1600s because yeah. it was it was the highway. It was yeah. a very strategic spot, but nobody was really living there at the time. Sure. Well, if yeah. you look at if you look at the map, you can see that you know from the Hudson River in New York City runs up to Albany, and then there's 
a, a small stretch of land before you get to Lake uh, George, and then which connects to Lake Champlain. So there's, and that of course connects to the um, St. Lawrence Seaway in Canada. So there's an almost unbroken highway of water all the way from Montreal and Quebec right down to New York City. So in a time when there are no roads, that is a very very important strategic route. And here come the British. Uh, this is all, like I say, we grew up on Kenneth Roberts novels. This is all, what, Arundel yeah. and Rabble in Arms, uh, yeah, you yeah. know. And, and it just stunned me as a boy to know to find out that Benedict Arnold was a hero, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, so anyway, he, uh, here come the British, and, and we got to build some ships. We got some cannon and stuff. Well, you know, everything's hard to come by. So um, in uh, Skeensboro, uh, which was kind of a loyal uh, a settlement, Founded mm-hmm. by a loyalist fella. That's right, yeah. Who uh, got chased off. They they had a sawmill, and they started to knock together these ships. I got to compliment you on uh, really setting that scene well, too, and, and uh, not only helping me imagine those ships, but you've got great um, drawings and paintings uh, oh. of his illustration in your book, what the damn things actually looked like. Yeah, yeah. a lot of those are from uh, a, uh, an artist in Burlington named Ernie Haas, who yeah. kindly let me uh, use them. Great stuff. Oh, fantastic time tripping. And the Americans now, they're overmatched, and here come the British, and yep. uh, so what are we going to do? Yeah, well, they, yeah, they're, they're building this fleet, and, uh, of course, part of the problem is you know, the British had the British Navy there, the greatest Navy in the world. They had you know, the, the ship carpenters, they had the officers, sailors, all of that at their disposal. The Americans, these guys were soldiers. They didn't know anything about ships. You know, the officers were all Army officers. They weren't naval officers. So it turns out the only guy there who with any really maritime experience is Benedict Arnold because he had commanded his his merchant ships and he's also the guy that knew how to you know kick rear end and take names so they uh, put Arnold in charge of the fleet and he uh, you know builds it as quickly as he can mans it you know he's writing to all of the different regimental commanders saying you know if you have any sailors in your ranks please send them to me I need real sailors and you know, the regimental commanders are using this as an excuse to get rid of their most worthless guys. It's like, well, you know, this guy's useless. Okay, we'll say he's a sailor, and off you go. And uh, Arnold Arnold needs boat builders worse than anything. Exactly, yeah. Um, and they're kind of busy fitting out privateers on the coast. They don't want to go up in the middle of the woods and, exactly. and in this, uh, you know, what the heck's going on project. Sure. And, another another uh, perfect example of how, you know, these guys aren't necessarily motivated by patriotism. Yeah, and... As he says, a house carpenter is not really a boat builder, yep. and I need boat builders. And they were paying a premium for boat builders, I believe, uh, about higher than anybody else was being offered that's, wages around at the time. That's exactly right. They just kept jacking up the wages and jacking up the wages in order to attract people there until finally the shipwrights at uh, Skeensboro, which is now Whitehall, um, were the highest paid guys in the Navy after the Commodore. <laughs> it was nuts. And Arnold, uh, so like boat builders, just absolutely crucial to the yeah. to the revolution here. But also Arnold is saying, I need sailors, and a soldier is not a sailor. Get me some sailors. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he's you know he's looking for anyone um, uh, with with any kind of experience. And like I said, a lot of the regimental commanders are pawning off their useless guys on him, but uh, but they're not sailors. And you know Arnold, um, yeah, he's, I mean. You know, he doesn't stop writing these letters and trying to recruit in the seaport towns and all this, but no one's interested in coming to the wilderness and do this. More leadership. So he builds these uh, row galleys and gundalows, yep. but now we need some strategery because here come the British and they got more better stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Arnold uh, takes his fleet up to the northern end of um, Valcour Island, or uh, the northern end of Lake Champlain, 
and sort of waiting for the British to come out. He's got no intelligence as to what they're doing. You know, he knows they're building a fleet, doesn't know how big it is. Uh, and what happens is the, uh, the British commander, uh, Sir Guy Carleton, um, he's kind of got the, the, uh, the Colin Powell doctrine, uh, meaning that, you know, he's not going to attack until he has got absolute overwhelming force. So the British keep building ships right up through October, you know, to make sure that they've got this, these big vessels that they know can wipe out the Americans. Arnold knows that he's got no chance of fighting them in the open. They're just going to kill him. So he takes his fleet and he tucks it in behind Valcour Island, knowing that when the British are sailing south... With the wind behind them. With the wind behind them, exactly. Because, uh, you know, these, these aren't America's Cup boats. They're not going to be tacking to windward. Uh, they're going to be running downwind. They're going to run past Valcour Island before they see him. And the big ships, the square riggers, are not going to be able to sail back against the wind to get into the fight. And they cannot leave him behind them. Exactly, and they can't yeah. leave him in the rear. So, so it, it was a brilliant strategy. And it, it immediately eliminates you know, the, the largest, most powerful vessels in the British fleet. So when the, and it works out exactly the way he plans. They come down, they see him, the smaller gunboats are able to row back and engage the American fleet. But the big ships are stuck. All they can do is watch. And they're all, all at anchor and, and shooting yep. cannons at each other. And yep. the Americans really don't get the best of it. No, no. Uh, Five-hour slugfest. Uh, the Americans and the British at essentially point-blank range slam away at each other. Um, and it, it's largely a draw. I mean, the Americans do get, get beat up very badly. Certainly they get beat up a lot worse than the British did. But... Um, uh, more crucially, the Americans just don't have the ammunition, they don't have the gunpowder, um, you know, they don't have the supplies. So, um, so yeah, that, you know, the sun comes down, the battle ends, the Americans are just hanging on by a thread. Arnold knows that when the sun comes up, they're dead. They're just going to be wiped out by the British. So he gets this, this daring plan where he uh, gets all the, the cabins together and they, they muffle their oars so they don't make any sound creaking, and they hang a lantern astern so that only the vessel directly astern of them can see it, and they row right through the British line in the middle of the night and run off down the lake. The British sun comes up in the morning, the British are ready to continue the fight, and nothing there. They can't that, believe it. That story's been repeated a few times through the Revolution, especially, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the British, uh, you know, were kind of bamboozled there, and the point being that it's late in the fall. Yeah, yeah. And they want to head down to Albany, hopefully, to spend the winter, but they haven't really got Benedict Arnold, the, the Benedict Arnold problem solved. Exactly. So, you know, in, in essence, they're done for the winter. It's, well, that's it, because before, before they go to Albany, they still have to capture Fort Ticonderoga, which is not going to be an easy prospect. Yeah. And the idea of laying siege to Fort Ticonderoga in November, you know, upper state New York, nah, that doesn't seem appealing to anyone. So, yeah, they head back to Canada, say the heck with it, we'll try it next year. And the Battle of Alcor Island, which was, like you say, sort of a draw we kind of lost, but uh, yeah. it was a delaying action, and it, it worked. And it worked very well, It exactly. put the British off for that whole winter. Now, the next spring, they came back to yeah. Ticonderoga quite, quite handily, yeah. went yeah. down towards Albany and got stuck uh, at a place called Freeman's Farm near Saratoga, New York, in a yeah. famous battle that was really one of the great, uh, I just got a little chill thinking about it, one of the great... Uh, <laughs> You know, turning points of the revolution where the yeah. French started to look nicer at us, and yeah, that's that's exactly it. Yeah. You get uh, Burgoyne who gets captured at Saratoga. You know, gets caught at Saratoga, gets beaten. Something that no one ever thought could happen. The Americans could actually beat a British army, and um, uh, that's when the French realized, gee, these guys might actually win this thing. 
So. And Benedict Arnold wasn't in charge at the time. Matter of fact, he'd been kind of sidelined. He wasn't yep. getting along with General Gates, but they could not have won the battle without him. That's right. Yeah, he, uh, um, yeah, he was fighting with uh, Horatio Gates, who was the uh, the commanding officer at the time. And um, you know, Gates basically stripped him of his command, and Arnold, with absolutely no authority at all, rides onto the field at the sort of climactic moment and takes what would have been a partial victory on the part of the Americans. He leads the American troops forward into this, this sort of stunning uh, victory, this, you know, this route where he drives the, the Germans and the British out of their redoubts and, and really wins the day. But because Gates uh, and uh, Arnold is gravely wounded, he's shot in the leg, same leg that was wounded in Quebec, um, because Gates didn't like him. Gates basically ignores him in all the reports. So Arnold spends eight months convalescing from this wound, hearing about what a hero Gates is, and is completely ignored. His, his part in the battle is ignored, and he starts getting very resentful about it. And like say, he went into it with a chip on his shoulder, yeah. and, you know, the politics of the whole thing really, yeah. you know, haven't been favoring him. So, but, And Arnold was a lousy politician. He, he could not play that game very well, and that, that really ends up, uh, you know, shafting him in the end. It's one of the reasons he's, you know, so frequently passed over for command because he didn't know how to schmooze. In some ways, he's like a couple other, let's point out a couple other great American warriors who were, you know, you wanted them fighting, but the rest of the time, what the heck are you going to do with George Patton or John Paul Jones? You sure, know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, they tended to piss people off yeah, yeah. on a regular basis. And you see, uh, even in the Revolution, a guy like Daniel Morgan, who was with um, uh, Arnold in Quebec and was instrumental at Saratoga, you know, he had and passed over for promotion a number of times, he just quit. Said, the heck with it, I'm leaving. And a year later, the Congress realized, we need this guy. You know, so they went back and said, okay, whatever you want, you know, whatever, office, you know, whatever rank you want, it's yours, just come back. And Arnold, uh, you know, he ended up in charge of the city of Philadelphia and then uh, asked to be put in charge of uh, a little fort called West Point <laughs> right. on the Hudson River. That's right. But by this time, he was pretty pissed. He, he was, was. And he felt that the Congress especially, let alone the Army, was screwing up the Revolution. Yeah, yeah. And really, they weren't going to win. Yeah. I think he did think that. I think, you know, when you look at his activities in Philadelphia, it's pretty clear that he had pretty much, he was pretty much done with the cause. And he'd spent a lot of his own personal fortune uh, on the war and had not recouped that money. And I think he was sort of looking to make a little profit. He was kind of looking out for the big number one at this point. And around then, he marries this beautiful young woman. She's half his age. Her name is Peggy Shippen, um, who was a loyalist and had very strong connections uh, to the British Army. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to blame a woman for what Arnold did. But Great seems, plot twist, though. Throw yeah. the beautiful woman in. Exactly, exactly. And it seems pretty clear that you know she took him from being disgruntled to being a traitor, and said, you know, look, if the Americans aren't taking care of you, the British probably will. And so she sort of pushes him that last few inches into actual treason. And his name goes down in history synonymous with the word, you know. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. and again, but we sort of couldn't have done the revolution in the way it turned out without him, but that that part of history would confuse the myth now, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as, you know, he becomes the most despised man uh, in America after his treason, understandably. And, of course, the reason that 
his treason was such a big deal because he was so great. You know, there are plenty of people that went over to the British side, and who cares? They were nobody. But this was Benedict Arnold. You know, this would be like if Henry Knox and Nathaniel Green had become a traitor. George, and that's why it was it was such a big deal. George Washington valued him highly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he was you know when he um, he had already decided he was going to turn West Point over to the British. The uh, Washington offered him command of the left wing of the army. It was the most prestigious command available. But Arnold, at this point, he'd already turned, and he said, "Yeah, no. he had it." Yeah. Wow. Um, we're doing boat talk this morning, and we have author and historian James L. Nelson on the phone from the Maine Maritime Museum in Bath. We're uh, talking right now about his book, Benedict Arnold's Navy. But George Washington just come up, and your most recent book is uh, George Washington's Secret Navy. Yep. Yep. Now, George wasn't a sailor; he didn't know nothing about <laughs> boats. That's right. George was a he was a Virginia planter, of course, and his military experience had all been in wilderness fighting. He'd fought, you know, in the Ohio Territory in Western Virginia along the frontier. That was what he knew, and it was sort of uh, Indian-style, woodland-style fighting that was his specialty. He didn't know anything about Navy or naval strategy. But here he is in Boston. He's in charge of, like, what, 15,000, uh, yeah. yeah. you know, citizen soldiers who have all just sort of showed up. Yeah. With, uh, more, uh, some got more organization than others and, and uh, kind of, you know, independent-minded and the damn Yankees, you can't <laughs> tell them to do nothing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And George is sitting on the hills around uh, Boston Neck looking down at the British going, hey, I got them surrounded, cool. But then he sees the British ships coming and going in the harbor and realizes he hasn't got them surrounded at all. That's right, exactly. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, um, it's kind of a stalemate because Washington, Washington would love to attack the British in Boston, but his, uh, his senior officers talk him out of it and I think they're right. The British were heavily entrenched, and they had the experience. They had the gunpowder. The Americans had no experience, almost no gunpowder. Uh, the British weren't about to attack Washington because there was no reason for them to. You know, there's, even if they did break through the American lines, what could they do? They couldn't take all of Massachusetts. So they were just biding their time until they could get to New York. So it becomes a stalemate and essentially devolves into a siege. But like you say, as long as the sea lanes are open, you can't starve them out. They can always get food, you know, from their merchant vessels. And Washington, who doesn't know anything about naval strategy, doesn't think there's anything he can do about it. But he realizes if he had a boat, it would be a little bit better. Right. Well, he, um, you know, again, it, it, he probably didn't come to this conclusion on his own. Um, you know, it's, Washington kind of thought a navy had to mean, you know, big ships, 74-gun ships of the line, frigates, that sort of thing. It's probably, uh, we don't know for sure, but it's most likely John Glover from Marblehead, who was... Uh, uh, ship owner, experienced mariner, who probably came to Washington and said, look, you don't need big ships. All you need are schooners with a few cannons on them to capture these unarmed merchant vessels. That's all you need. And once Washington understood the logic of that, he became a huge advocate for this little armed schooner fleet and pushed very hard for it. And he fitted out a couple of uh, a couple of iron schooners, but he kind of didn't tell the Congress. <laughs> exactly. Well, for was, a couple of good reasons, right? Exactly. Well, the Navy was a real hot button issue. Um, the uh, for one thing, it's wicked expensive. Uh, and the, the Congress didn't want to undertake the expense. For another thing, the Southerners understood that this was going to be a, a Yankee thing, and they didn't want to spend money on something that was just going to help the Yankees. And the other problem was that they weren't. You know, the Americans weren't ready to declare independence at this point. And only independent nations form navies. So forming a navy is almost like a tacit declaration of independence. They weren't really ready to go that far. So Washington, he knows he has to do this, 
but he also knows that Congress won't approve it, so he just doesn't bother to tell them. You pointed out so well that uh, militia was a great uh, tradition. You know, ever since mm-hmm. the Pilgrims and militia to protect your homes and your families. Exactly. But a Navy is a totally different thing. Exactly. To go out on the sea and take somebody else's ship, you either have to be a sovereign nation or a pirate. Yeah, exa- yeah exactly right. And, and the British course, called one, them pirates one, when they first started doing it. Well, that's right. One, uh, one country's uh, patriot freedom fighters and another country's pirates. And you see that all through history. Yeah, I guess we do, don't we? <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, that's exactly right. They... Um, you know, there had always been a militia, and as long as it was just the army in the field, they could always say, well, hey, we're just defending our homeland. But no. once you start sending ships out into the sea, that's a whole different matter. Another one of my favorite uh, things you brought up was George Washington did not have a high regard for Yankee sailors. <laughs> no, no. It's very, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. David Hackett Fisher, who's one of my favorite uh, historians, in his book, Washington's Crossing. Got it right here in front of me. Oh, yeah, it's a great yeah. book. But he, he explores this idea of what liberty and independence meant to a Virginia aristocrat planter like Washington, as opposed to what it meant to Yankees with a tradition of town hall meetings and such. It's very, very different visions and ideas of liberty. I mean, we sort of use that term... Uh, liberty, you know, freedom, like everyone understands what it means, but they're very, very different understandings of its meaning. And Washington couldn't stand the New England vision of liberty, you know, the real egalitarian town meeting. You know, he, he was more used to his slave-owning aristocracy and their vision of liberty. That's pretty, like I say, uh, pretty interesting stuff all the way around. They did uh, mess with the British quite badly. Yeah, yeah. Um, took some uh, important ships, including uh, one or two that were just stuffed with cannon and gunpowder, yeah. which they didn't have any of. I mean, literally didn't have any. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It, was, it ended up being a very successful uh, enterprise in the end. It, it was a lot of growing pains, but once they started getting the hang of it, and they started snatching up these British ships, they're denying the British food, which was they desperately needed. The Americans, of course, didn't need food as much because they had all the resources of the countryside at their back. But they also snatched up a bunch of military supplies that the Americans desperately needed. And the one ship they captured, the Nancy, you know, everyone said if they, you know, Washington and his officers said if they had to sit down and make a list of stuff that they would have ordered from, you know, armies are us, uh, it would have been everything they had on board the Nancy. Beautiful thing. I wish our friend Giffy Fole was here this morning. Giffy is uh, uh, one of the most senior surveyors, boat surveyors in, in the country, if not the world, and, mm. and he's in his mid-80s. He's off to uh, survey the Sherman F's Wicker, a, a schooner oh, yeah. down in uh, Booth Bay this morning. Well, that's going to be... Uh, the next three days, but he... That will be coming here to Maine Maritime Museum. Yeah, uh, Giffy's from Marblehead originally, and he wrote this book, and I was talking to him yesterday, he was just uh, saying how much interesting stuff he learned about, especially the revolution in Marblehead, and he grew up there, interested oh. in it, you know. Oh, that's great. So, that's yeah, great I wish he was here this morning. Well, give him my best. Yeah, but anyway, uh, so uh, George Washington, like say, say... Uh, in his own way, the founder of the U.S. Navy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, i got to be careful when I'm talking down in, in Beverly or Marblehead because this is a pretty uh, sensitive subject down there. Cause what, what happened was um, the officers and the crew, John Glover and, and the rest, were almost all from Marblehead. But people who are familiar with Marblehead know it's a very exposed harbor. And if you're trying to secretly put a fleet together, it's not a good place to do it. Beverly... Uh, is a lot better place to do it because Beverly Harbor is really hard to get into. There's a lot of tricky 
channels and shallows. So all of the, the fitting out of the fleet and all the operations were based out of Beverly. So basically for 230 years, Beverly and Marblehead have been arguing about which is the birthplace of the American Navy. Of course, Whitehall and New York and Machias are also chiming in on that with their own claims. So. Uh, a, a, what do you call it, a well-found baby has lots of fathers want to claim it sometimes. You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking about uh, George Washington right here in, in the book uh, Washington's Cross and David Hackett Fisher. Um, there's something there that just blew me away that I'd like to bring out this morning because uh, the talk, Dick Cheney was just on television this weekend, you know, trying to, to reinforce the need for us to torture people, <laughs> you know, and... Yeah. Uh, uh, to be the biggest bastards in in the fight, to out bastard the other bastards, because yeah. you know that's that's always a way to go. You know, you can always turn that up a notch. But George Washington um, declared, and you got to remember, in in uh, at by the winter of 1776, they were getting their asses kicked. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, they'd been badly defeated at Long Island, and uh, they'd retreated down through uh, uh, New York, uh, New York, and uh, New Jersey. And uh, that winter, the farmers. And the New Jersey area rose up kind of uh, spontaneously. They called it the Forage Wars, kind of an insurrection, yeah, insurgency. Uh -huh. yeah. And they were harassing the British and their Hessian allies very badly. Yeah. And uh, so there they were in Trenton, New Jersey on, on Christmas Eve, and George Washington crossed the Delaware, attacked uh, Trenton famously, and, and uh, captured, you know, like a thousand Hessians or so. Yeah, yeah. And the British were... were Really hard enemies, uh, not to mention the Hessians were these foreign mercenaries. They're like Star Wars stormtroopers, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, very, very fearful and unknown. Yeah. We, we have another phone call, aren't we? Uh, Break for that one. Let's finish this real quick, though. George Washington, um, um, you know, uh, the British often would give no quarter on the battlefield. Yeah. You know, um, and they put the Americans in prison hulk ships in New York and, and uh, just, you know, treated them just abominably. Yeah, yeah. George Washington sort of took a different tack, though, and he established what he called the policy of humanity mm -hmm. and uh, decided that they were above that and yeah. they weren't going to treat those bastards uh, the same way they were being treated, you know. And they captured these Hessians. Now, what are they going to do with them? They marched them to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania with a militia company who went home along the way. And they treated the Hessians so good that at first the Hessians couldn't understand you know, what was going on. Yeah, yeah. And by the time they got to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they were not guarded. The last uh, fellow was the captain. He left for home before Lancaster says, I'll see you in Lancaster in a couple of days. It's this way. <laughs> and the Hessians marched themselves there and all showed up. Yeah. Because yeah. they were being treated so well. And sure. a lot of them um, immigrated to America afterwards. Oh, yeah. And uh, if I could here real quick, the uh, uh, John Adams says uh, about the policy of humanity here, he says, I know of no policy, God is my witness, but this. Yeah, yeah. Piety, humanity, and honesty are the best policy. Absolutely. Blasphemy, cruelty, and villainy have prevailed and may again, but they won't prevail against America in this contest because I find the more they are employed, the less they succeed. And those fellows did not really have the liberty of taking the high ground, moral ground that way. They, you know, weren't in a good position. Yeah, right, right. But it worked. And nowadays we're, of course, doing what we think we have to do. And yeah. I just wanted to throw that in this morning. The phone has rang, and we need to answer it, Jim. Talking to Jim Nelson this morning. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, this is uh, Kelsey from Winterport. Good morning, Hi, Kelsey. Kelsey. What do you think? Hey, I was, uh, you guys were talking about Beverly and uh, Marblehead and... Uh, I was just wondering, I grew up in Gloucester, 
Massachusetts. I was wondering if Jim had any information about the role that the Essex Shipbuilding Museum had, or the shipbuilding yard had in the Revolution. If they had a big play in that, or were they kind of a side side? Oh unit? boy! Now I'm I'm trying to remember. Um, there was some interesting stuff that went on there. I think uh, one of the um, uh, the frigates that was built for the American Revolution was built there. If I'm remembering correctly, that's the one that they couldn't actually get over the bar when they got oh, tried okay. to bring it down the river. But wasn't also um, uh, Bushnell's Turtle built there? Uh, it was the first uh, first submarine. First Alan submarine. That gets Alan going. Yeah, we talked about that last time you were on the radio with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah I believe that. Uh, I believe that was built there as well. I know uh, they got a great little museum down there, and they've got a replica yep. of the the yep. turtle. Okay. So, and how about Gloucester Harbor? Was did that have any play in the uh, in the Revolution itself? Well, you read um, uh, particularly like in um, uh, well in George Washington's Secret Navy, uh, it actually uh, comes in quite a bit because uh, it was one of the safe harbors that the ships could uh, the American ships could duck into. It was pretty well protected, yep. and uh, it was a place that they sent a lot of the prizes to. So yeah, it uh, all those harbors, Gloucester and uh, Marblehead, Beverly. Um, uh, they all play a, a pretty significant role in the revolution, at least during those first um, year and a half or so when, when that really was the theater of war. Right. They're now, all... uh, one other question, too. Um, the, you know, the dog bar breakwaters associated with all those harbors, they, they would have been after the revolution. Is that correct? Uh, I, I don't know, but my guess would yeah. be yes. Yeah. yeah, okay, right. Okay. Well, thanks. Just Absolutely. curious. Yeah. Thank you, Kelsey, for calling this morning. Okay, Bye. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, Beverly, uh, Marblehead, and Gloucester are all right around Cape Ann and real near each other, just north of Boston. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, George Washington, uh, George Washington's Secret Navy now. Well, it's interesting. I, if I could just say, you know, when you're talking about this idea of humanity and, and, and atrocity and, and what works, and uh, you see again and again in history, this, you know, people get this notion that, well, gee, if we just absolutely terrorize them, then they'll give up. And a perfect example is when the British um, burned uh, Portland, Maine. There you go. Called Falmouth yeah. you know, in uh, 1775 in October. They had this idea that they're just going to wipe out the seaport towns. Then they'll behave. Yeah, exactly. And it never worked. It, it you pisses know. people off. Exactly. And so what you ended up with, you know, people were so shocked at the brutality of what they did in Falmouth that a lot of people who before that, you know, didn't necessarily have an opinion one way or the other on the war, suddenly became patriots. You know, it's just, and you see it again and again, it's like the Germans bombing London in the Second World War, like it's going to make them give up. No, it just makes them redouble their efforts. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's a mistake, and, uh, and it backfires every time. It's an interesting echo of history. Um, again, talking to author and historian James L. Nelson this morning. Uh, Jim, you wrote a series of uh, pirate books, too, uh, what's yep. it called? The Brethren at Sea, uh, the Brethren of the Coast trilogy. Yep. We we got to mention pirates too. A uh, very popular subject around boat talk. Uh, we had a fellow call last month who had been attacked by pirates the week before nine eleven off of Somalia. Wow! Yeah. Wow! You didn't hear about it back then. No, not too much. Uh, but it's all it's been going on all you know always and ever since. You have a pirate persona. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I play. Uh, uh, Black Jim Spudcake, the fourth fiercest pirate in the Caribbean. Fourth fiercest. Fourth fiercest, yeah. <laughs> that started out uh, uh, years ago. We, uh, 
here at the museum, we do a pirate party um, on the Saturday closest to Halloween every year. It's a pretty big deal. It's a lot of fun. And I've been, for years, I've been coming here. I started off dressing, putting together a little pirate outfit, and been getting more and more elaborate over the years. And, um, you know, someone asked me, well, gee, do you do school programs? And I thought, well, I haven't, but I suppose I could. So I sort of put together a school program. And, and so, yeah, I, I bring my, my pirate character out to schools and libraries and things like that. And, and one of the ideas is to, um, to teach kids what piracy was really like, you know, not the sort of Johnny Depp, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean nonsense. Oh, but let's the, keep the myth simple and sweet, Jim. Exactly. Come on. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. But, Again, you know. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, we try to get into the, the real history of it and what it was like, and of course it wasn't real pretty. Interesting. Now it's, uh, we're having problems over in Somalia right now. Yep. And, Captain Phillips was just down to uh, the Congress in the White House, and he was advocating arming uh, these merchant sailors, or at least some of them who are somewhat trained on, on these vessels. And, of course, in the old days, uh, if you wanted to protect yourself against pirates, you got a few cannon, and, yeah. and you looked fierce and, and made them not want to attack you and stuff. But times are changing. We not the same liability problems in the old days we have nowadays, are there? That's right. You didn't have things like wrongful death lawsuits and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but no, you're right. It's, you know, in, the, uh, in the 18th century, it was standard for any merchant ship to have a few cannons on them to protect themselves against pirates. And uh, um, you know, now it's, it's interesting to see them talking about maybe doing that again. Um, but it's hard to repel borders with, with uh, RPG uh, rocket launchers with a fire hose. You well, know, yeah, exactly. I mean, spray an AK-47 fire at you, and you're <laughs> shooting them with a fire hose, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what the solution is to that. I mean, they're talking about maybe um, bringing merchant ships into convoys again, like they used to in the old days. But even then, I think I, I just uh, read the other day that a sh- ship that was under naval escort got snatched by pirates. So that isn't necessarily going to help them. Yeah, and, and force uh, against force can escalate and, you know, uh, yeah. complicate things. I was teasing Giffy Fuller, a friend, uh, um, uh, often co-host here last month. Uh, Giffy uh, surveyed Old Ironside's USS Constitution for years. And, oh, wow. And the last time they uh, turned her well, they turn her around every year, and, yeah. and a few years ago they wanted to raise the sails, so they went to Giffy and found out if it was okay to do. And Giffy, how come we can't just untie old Ironside, sail over there, give him a few broadsides, <laughs> keel home, and hang him? You know, hey, it worked. Uh, worked uh, two hundred years ago. Yeah, sure. Commodore Preble and you know the Barbary pirates yep. and the shores of Tripoli and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But but it's a new age, and uh, you know, uh, Black Jim Spudcake sort of doesn't fit in now, does he? No, no he doesn't. Does he? Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny because people are you know shocked shocked to find that these Somali pirates are you know ruthless and you know. Uh, it's like, well, come on, they're pirates. You know, just because uh, pirates wore fun outfits and had parrots and stuff doesn't mean they weren't also ruthless killers. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's silly. A rapper named uh, Little Wayne was on uh, TV recently, and he was interviewed by Katie Couric. And he says, I'm a, I'm a gangster, Miss Katie. <laughs> and Katie Couric says, well, what's a gangster, Little Wayne? And he says, I do what I wants to whenever I feel like it, Miss <laughs> Katie. And that's a pirate, too. That's a pirate, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, I've, I've heard interviews with these guys, uh, with Hell's Angels, and you listen to these guys talking about, uh, you know, it's like, boy, these, these exact same guys became pirates 300 years ago. Yeah. 
We're talking to, uh, like say, author and historian James L. Nelson this morning from his office down at the Maine Maritime Museum. And um, he and I have sort of monopolized the conversation this morning, but boy, there's so much stuff wanted to, to get told this morning. And, you know, uh, um, I can't thank you enough, Jim. Uh, oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we're running up to the end of Bow Talk right now. The phone has uh, just rang, and we'll see if somebody's there. But what's coming up for you? Uh, well, working on another book right now uh, about. Um uh, naval battle uh, between the French and British fleet in the end of the Revolution that allowed Washington to capture Cornwallis at Yorktown. Uh, another pivotal part of the Revolution that people haven't really heard of. And uh, other than that, putting in the garden, getting ready for more chickens. Huh. Yeah, all right. Well, we uh, let's go to that one phone call. Yeah. We have just a couple of minutes. So, good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. Hi. What's up? Who are we speaking with? Chris. Chris from Belfast. Hi, Chris. Yes, I was interested in um, what you were talking about recently about uh, Washington and uh, being in Trenton and on Christmas Day crossing the Delaware to attack Trenton. And I just wanted to put in a plug for the guy that was there with him for the pre- for the three days before he did that. And he was the man from... Machias, Maine, Colonel John Allen. Ah, okay. Oh, uh, and he's the no. all, all, always forgotten hero of the whole situation. James Allen is a was, fascinating he was, character. He was on his way to the Continental Congress when he uh, met one of Washington's generals who took him to him on December 22nd, 1776, and he spent the next three days with Washington and parted with him on Christmas Day. Huh. Allen went on to go to the Continental Congress and Washington to cross the Delaware. Excellent. And in, in his packet, Allen had a commission as a colonel in the Continental Army and the uh, first superintendent for Indian Affairs in the history of the United States. And, and that on, on, on three days meeting. <laughs> Excellent. Great so point, I just wanted Chris. to put in a plug if anybody really is interested in finding out more about Colonel Allen and and his work with the, during the revolution, especially with the Wabanaki Indians, there's a website www. dot c o l a l l a n. dot o r g. That's a great that's a great stuff, Chris. Appreciate that. Of course, uh, the story of the burning of Falmouth, now Portland, and also uh, what happened down to uh, Machias. Uh, with the O'Brien boys in the Burnham Tavern uh, is is well told in Jim's new yes, book. Yes, and uh, it was a more more crucial part. Allen and what he did with the Wabanakis was a more crucial part of the revolution than has ever been admitted to. Couldn't agree more. Great, great uh, point, uh, Chris. Yeah. Well, as usual, we have a lot more to talk about. Boy, we r- have time <laughs> time left to talk in. Right in the corner. Yeah. So. Uh, Thank you very much, James Nelson, for joining us. Uh, what's your website, quickly? It's www.jameslnelson.com. Great. Thank and uh, much, the books are in the bookstores and in the libraries. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I, I, Alan, Mike, thank you so much. It's been great. Oh, Jim, enjoyed it so much, and we've been trying for three months to basically do this, and so glad, uh, you know, we pulled it off. We'll talk to you soon. Stay tuned for Jim Behoosh and On the Wing coming up next here on WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9 and 102.9 in Bangor. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. 
Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com.